Hi, my name is Jessica Bradley and this is my smoke story. I chased the smoke of pride and control. My story begins in 2012. I was a teacher and a, high, at a, and a coach at a local high school and my husband Blake and I were about to become parents for the first time. And if you could ever be ready for a new baby, which, spoiler alert, you can't be, we were. We decided that having a baby at the end of April would be what worked best for my coaching schedule, so that's what we did, as if it were just that easy. <laughs> I had Carter on April 23, 2012, and for all intents and purposes, he was healthy and perfectly handsome. But I noticed, probably about six weeks in, that I was feeling very out of control of my emotions. I was crying all the time, and for no reason at all. And if you know me, this is usually not like who I am. I couldn't see the joy in front of my face for the chaos in my head and the tears in my eyes, and I tried my best to shake it. But when things weren't getting better, I decided to take matters into my own hands. Surely I could control and fix this if I just tried hard enough. I decided the answer to all my problems was to run straight back into my career. I thought if I went back to what I had always defined me and what I had always known I was called to do, then I'd find myself again, and the emotional roller coaster would subside. I probably don't need to tell you that returning to a 60-hour-a-week job with a newborn at home was not the solution I was looking for. After much discussion with my doctor and trying to convince her that this was just hormones, I caved, and with much unnecessary shame and embarrassment, I started on medication for postpartum depression, which is still a really hard word for me to say for the next six months. The medication helped me control my emotions, <clears throat> and we slowly found a new normal as a family of three for the next three years. Fast forward three years to 2015, and I'm pregnant with number two. Another little boy that I was so relieved to learn wasn't the little girl that I just knew God would give me to be funny. <clears throat> yeah. so having been down this road once before, I knew what was likely coming for me after delivery. I knew it was common for women who struggled with postpartum depression in their first pregnancy to struggle in subsequent pregnancies and that it often gets worse each time. That's great news, right? It's like super encouraging. Yeah. So I naively thought that since I knew what to expect with my emotional health this time, that it would somehow make it not so bad. I unfortunately was very wrong. Instead of the slow fade that took four to six weeks the first time, by day three in the hospital, I'd hit an all-time low. I'd been on the verge of a breakdown all morning, but it had visitors, so I held myself together. The minute they left, my doctor walked in and she smiled and asked how I was feeling, to which I responded by grabbing the baby blanket, burying my face in it, and sobbing harder than I ever had. It felt like the lowest moment of my life. Before my doctor left the hospital, she decided to call in my meds again for the scariest trip, for the second trip on the scariest ride ever. The next several weeks were probably the hardest of my life. Things did not get better quickly. It took going through this battle twice to realize that the smoke of pride and control that I'd been chasing simply wasn't working for me. I had a friend named Suzanne Morgan in my small group, which were pretty much the only people at Rock Point that I knew at the time, and she invited me to go to a Bible study with her. She said there was childcare, and that sounded like the perfect opportunity for me to do something for myself. So, when Grayson was four weeks old, I made my very first outing with two boys by myself, and we showed up here to the psalm study. I have no doubt that we looked like a traveling circus full of desperation, because it felt like women flocked to me from every corner of the church. <laughs> Suzanne helped me get Carter situated in class, and Grayson and I were a hot mess, uh, making bottles and swaddling. 
Grayson dropped his passy, and a sweet lady I didn't know, who I'm pretty sure ended up being Becky, went and washed the passy and brought it out to me on a paper towel. It was in those first seemingly insignificant moments that I instantly felt seen, which was what I so desperately needed. Because of how welcomed and cared for I felt that first day, I made it a point to never miss. So many women would try and give me accolades for showing up to Bible study with a newborn, and usually with my homework done, but there was no guarantee on a shower. Um, but I was very quick to tell them that it wasn't because I was super spiritual, but rather super desperate. The many things that God did through my life through that study is another story for another time. But what I want to share about what God did during that time is this. He let me get to the end of my rope. He showed me that I couldn't control anything despite my best efforts. And that when I was finally so broken that the only place I could turn and find solace was in him and his word, it was then that I realized that chasing him and nothing else is where I would find my fulfillment. It took me trying to do things my way and failing miserably to step out in faith and obedience and be fully dependent on him. And it was then that he healed my heart in ways that I could never imagine. He provided me with people who validated my feelings and showed me there's no shame in fighting depression. I learned so much truth and found real community with a bunch of women who saw me and loved me so well. And if I could go back and change that very painful part of my life, I wouldn't do it because it changed me. He took a broken person and he showed me my identity is in him alone. It has no doubt changed the trajectory of my faith and in turn my family's faith as well. I hope if nothing else today, you'll think of the bruised and broken areas in your life and know that God wants to do something big with them. He can truly bring beauty from ashes. I want to close by reading you an excerpt from my psalm study book. We were asked to compose our own Psalm 124, which is where David recounts a time of deliverance. I wrote this about nine months after Grayson was born, and it was around the time when the dark cloud finally lifted off of me. And I found it the other day, and I thought it was a sweet picture of God's deliverance of me from the bondage of postpartum. It says, If it had not been the Lord who was on our side when the tears fell endlessly, and when my self-confidence was shaken, and my body and mind were overrun with emotions, then the darkness would have won, and the joy in front of my face would have gone unrecognized. Blessed be the Lord, who has not given us over to the enemy's lies and traps. We have escaped like prisoners, found not guilty, when the gates were flung open. Our help is in the name of the Lord, who has made heaven and earth. And today I'm where I am, because of Christ alone. Thanks, Jessica. She's such a rule follower. Do you time yourself? You probably did. It's my kind of person. Uh, pray with me. Heavenly Father, um, today we come to you knowing this. You knew who would be in these chairs. You knew who needed to hear a word from you. You knew who needed to hear Jessica's encouragement and who needs to hear about Solomon's experiment. And God, um, each of us has something to gain from what you want us to hear. And so God, I pray today that, that we put away the distractions, God, and that we um, focus on what it is you have to say to us, not to the person next to us, not to um, those at home that you're going to share it with later, Lord, but what do you have to tell each of us? Um, because you have something to say. And so I pray that my words are yours 
And um, we pray for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'll say it again. You're back. Yay. In case you didn't know, open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 2 with me. Last week, last week, remember last week? You've slept a couple of times. I've had a few cups of coffee. It's been some time. Last week, Solomon takes us through the cycles of life, right? The repetitiveness of life. Update, my puppy is still doing the same things every day. I'll let you know when it changes, but still going the same, same way. And so Solomon laid it out for us this way. Remember, he said, nothing changes, nothing is new, nothing is understood. All that great encouragement, right? But we come to the end of chapter 12 and we realize that he wants us to know this. That may be true, but apart from God, we can feel meaningless. But when we know that there's a God who's in control of all of it, no matter how we feel, that there's true meaning and there's true satisfaction. This week, he shares with us because he's precious. This detailed um, description of how he experimented with pleasure. He took notes, apparently, and shares them with us for us to learn. You know, when I read through this, I'm like, okay, he probably, if if I were putting it in modern terms, you know, Solomon approached his life like this. He smoked it and he guzzled it and he shot it and he bought it and owned it and built it and, and he wrote it and sang it and told about it and he accumulated it and he used it and he exploited it, didn't he? All the things that God provided, that's how he approached this experiment. And so what can we learn from this? You know, how do we look at this life cycle of Solomon chasing after smoke and and take something away for our lives and the things we're chasing after? And so today what we're going to do is we're going to break down this text in chapter 2 into like four parts, okay? The first is going to be we're going to talk about experimentation. And he's going to give us those details, right, how he experiments. The second is he's going to take us to a place where he goes into consideration. He kind of stops and looks back and considers. Then he goes into that part that was so hard to read, right, about his despair. He goes into despair, but then at the end, in verses 24 through 26, we get to read about that carpe diem, seizing the day, right? And what does that even look like? What does that mean? So look with me in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Let's take a look at how Solomon talks about the experimentation that he takes on. So so last week we ended with that um, verse 18 in chapter 1, and we end with that whole, that, that, that statement that he makes about wisdom. It's much, much vexation, and he who increases in knowledge increases in sorrow, the end. But then he continues, and that's where we pick up today. And so I'm going to read the first three verses to you out loud, and then we're going to break it down a little bit. Starting in verse 1, chapter 2, he says this, And I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this was also vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart and how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. So the first three verses, basically what he does is he said, here's the plan. 
Here's how I'm going to test this whole idea, this pleasure principle, right? In your homework, remember you defined a real um, big long word that started with an H called hedonism. Do you remember that? Well, hedonism, for those of you, um, you may have a, a, a similar definition, but basically what it is is it's relentlessly pursuing pleasure. Relentlessly pursuing pleasure. And I thought it was important to add a side note, if you don't have teenagers yet, that they strive to become hedonists, and they're also often, often quite good at it. We are too, though, right? I mean, we're good examples of being hedonistic in our lives. We seek to pursue pleasure, and a lot of times that includes avoiding pain. Well, in verses 1 through 3, he says, here's the plan. I, I'm going to lay this out, and I'm going to go, and I'm going to test for the good of all the children of man. Isn't he so good to us? He's so giving and selfless. Like, he's going to do this for us. The thing I find interesting is he talks about, and you, you, you talked about it in your homework a little bit. He talks about how he hung on to his wisdom. Did you see that? And sometimes we can, we can, um, we can define this section and say, well, because he says that he was guided, still guided with his wisdom, that actually he didn't attempt these things in excess. That, that may be true. Regardless, here's the thing. God didn't remove the wisdom from Solomon, did he? He let him make stupid choices. Anyone? Anyone ever, God ever let you make stupid choices? Yeah. So here's the thing. Whenever you accept Jesus and, and you take up the cross and you walk with Jesus up that hill, you know what? You stumble a lot, don't you? We make stupid mistakes, and God loves us in spite of it, but he doesn't remove those obstacles. And so I love that he points out here, I'm still guided with wisdom, guys, but yet I'm going to tell you all these things that I've done. Jot this down just on the side. Proverbs 20, verse 1. Remember, he was also the author of Proverbs at a different time in his life, and those are all those little tiny little chunks of great, incredible information. Well, that, ver that verse, <clears throat> chapter 20, verse 1 says this. Wine is a mocker, a strong drink, a brawler. And this is the important part. And whoever is led astray by it is not wise. So was he drinking to be drunk or was he drinking to be social? We don't really know. Was he doing some of these things in excess that was over the top? We don't really know. But what we do know is what was his goal? It's to find pleasure, Right? To find pleasure. So that's the plan. I'm going to do these things. I'm going to try to find pleasure. And he goes on in verses 4 through 8, and he gives us all the details of how he did it, doesn't he? He lays it all out. And I think in your homework you talked about, I think you listed out a bunch of the things that he talks about here. But I want to point out some things as you look at this. I'm not going to reread it, but I just want you to take a look at that text. Remember I had you go through and count the eyes, didn't I? Well, something that's interesting you can count the eyes, and I think there's 12 or 13, something like that. I don't know. I don't number very well. But this is what's interesting, too. In this chapter, if you take me, myself, and I, all three of those words, you know how many times those appear? Like 40 times. Like 40 times. And so you can tell right now the focus of Solomon, his focus when he's talking about this experiment with pleasure was what? Himself. He's at the center of the whole thing. I mean, already we've got a clue. Christ is not the center. God is not the center. It is completely himself and his own pleasure and his own seeking. The other thing to notice is that everything he talks about from verses 4 through 8 is plural. You see that? I made great works. I built great houses. I planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and fruit trees. 
Like, I didn't even think about that. Just think for just a second the vastness of what he's talking about here. And think about the time of, of the world of what's happening. And so the vastness of the scope of what's happening and what he built and what he was doing, what does that mean? It means that he needs a massive workforce, right? And so we read before when we talked about um, Solomon's history in 1 Kings. Remember we talked about he enslaved people. He brought in slave labor to build these things. Don't be lost on the fact that all of this is so over the top that it's just massive. And so there's slaves that are involved and there's laborers in this massive workforce. Also, there's a lot of money, lots of money, lots of taxes, lots of foreign tributes that are brought by other kings who we don't know what their motives were or why they gave him money. There's also singing and there's sex, isn't there? We can pretend like we don't know, but concubines, they ain't just the maids, okay? This is Solomon. In verse 11, at the end of it, he, he refers to the singing and the sex that he's receiving and collecting as the delights of the sons of man. The delights of the sons of man. It's alarming to me, really, because when you really look at it in the big picture, it's not, and we'll talk a little bit more about it in a minute, it's not that these things necessarily are all these, these evil, terrible things. It's the way he's using them and what he's seeking through them. So he told us the plan. He told us how he's going to do it. And then he, he tells us how he concludes. Okay, so verses 9 through 11, I'm going to read it to you. Starting in um, verse 9, he says this. So, I love this sentence. I think we should all get this tattooed on ourselves or a t-shirt or something. Lindsay, t-shirt. So I became great and I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. It's like he has to keep telling us that, right? Verse 10. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. And note this. Put a little underline here because he says this. For my heart found pleasure in all of my toil. Oh, that's so great. Good for you. And this was my reward for all my toil. And so then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Wow, man. You did all these things, in plural, mind you. And then you end with... The same thing we keep hearing, right? That it was nothing but chasing after the smoke. He says, I had it all. I kept my wisdom throughout. Yay for me. He says, my heart found pleasure in the toil. My heart found pleasure. So when he was in the midst of it, he was digging it. It was good, wasn't it? Good stuff. In verse 11, he uses this word. He says, then I considered. The word consider there is a Hebrew word called panah, P-A-N-A-H, and it means to face or to look in the eye. So he's saying now, which I find this so interesting, he kind of stops for a minute and he says, okay, so I gave you this, laid this thing out, this is what I was going to do, this is how I did it, and then I considered all that I had done. And only when he considered it, right, is when he realized it was all vanity. Verse 11 is the key. All is vanity. Can you relate? Can we relate? I can relate. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I, I, I chase all sorts of things in plural, just like he did. 
I build all sorts of things in plural. I try to create these worlds, these communities in my mind or friendships or, or these false senses of reality because I feel like they're going to help me find pleasure. You know, like I, I, I decorate my home. I buy furniture. I have devices that think and speak and search and live for me. I, I um, have credit cards that pay for everything. Even if I don't have any money, it's magic. I've got cars that like, well, I don't have one, but maybe you do, that can park themselves. Guys, let's talk about that. That's a serious thing. Cars that park themselves. And here's one. How about this? I create online identities and communities. And if I want to, I could have maybe a harem online or maybe even a virtual partner that doesn't question anything. Perfect. Find all my pleasure. I want more, better, different. Nothing is out of reach. And so when you see Solomon say all this stuff, like, I'm so judgmental, guys. That's just a confession time. I read this and I'm like, oh my gosh, it was so ridiculous, so selfish. I mean, he made, all, he made who needs that many trees in parks? Whatever. But I start judging him. And then I look in the mirror. Here's the deal. This is a fact. And you can, you can write this down in pen, okay? Here's a fact. If I'm not putting... Jesus Christ at the center of my search for pleasure, satisfaction, meaning, whatever you want to call it, then I most certainly am the one at the center of it. I am just like Solomon. Me, myself, and I. It was compared in one of the, one of the books I read, the smart books I read, it said it like this. Have you ever heard of, if you've had an economics class, you've heard of this, but if you're like me and you didn't retain any of that information, you had to go Google it and find out what it means. He, they said this, it's kind of like the, the law of diminishing return, okay? And those of you that are real smart are like, yes, I totally know what that means. Well, the rest of us didn't know what that means. And here's what that means, okay? It's basically like what Solomon was doing here was kind of like looking for a drug fix, okay? So like he was living for pleasure and enjoyment, but as soon as the pleasure and enjoyment, um, it's, as soon as he achieved it, that it started to decrease unless the pleasure increased, okay? Let me put it, for those of you that aren't, aren't drug addicts, let me put it in a different way. I think you'll understand. Chocolate. Gotcha? You're all in now, right? Chocolate. The first bite of a chocolate cake, if you dig that sort of thing, is so good, right? And you want, like, hundreds of those bites. But guess what? Bite 100 tastes the same as bite one, but it diminishes in its return, doesn't it? Bite 100, the productivity is not quite there, and the satisfaction and the enthusiasm wanes. Anybody watch Man versus Food or whatever? That's, how I, that's what I thought of. One bite of cake is like, oh, but 100 bites of cake, it's the same bite, but it's ruining me, and I feel terrible, and I regret it. And there's no satisfaction. And, and that's what that book compared it, this part to that law of diminishing returns. Is that you keep thinking like Solomon did. Okay, if I build me a park, if I build me a palace, if I gather me up a concubine, it's going to be good. No, wait. I'm going to do that a hundred times over. And then you get to that hundredth bite and you say, what am I looking for? This is not satisfying anything, Right? Enjoyment, when it ceases, like at the bite 100, when the enjoyment ceases, then bondage takes over, doesn't it? Then you're just in bondage to this thing. 
No longer are you doing it for joy and is it fun is it, and is it a little at a time. Now all of a sudden it owns you, man. I read this and I thought this perfectly summed it up. It was this. Maybe this is why the book of Ecclesiastes is in the Bible for this point right here. Maybe it's here to convince us that satisfaction only comes in God himself. The world is not enough. Ecclesiastes doesn't show us this to make us discouraged or depressed, but to drive us back to God. This is not all there is. We are made for another world. There is a God in heaven who sent his son to save us and then satisfy us. Everything Solomon pursued, I want you to think on this for a second. Do you realize everything he pursued, Jesus was tempted with it and resisted it in Matthew 4? Everything. And when you read this, we are not to go live like Solomon. Who are we to live? Who are we to follow? We're to follow Jesus. Solomon's experiment looked like this. It's like he saw that there was a lacking in his life, okay? So he's like, I'm going to fill it with some stuff. I'm going to build stuff. I'm going to acquire stuff. I'm going to embrace these things. And then what happened? What, did he, what happened here at the end of verse 11? What does he say? I'm still unfulfilled. I don't understand. It's those cars that park themselves, right? You still can have an accident, guys. It still can happen, I promise. Well, he tried to fill this unfulfillment. He tried to find satisfaction, and still it remained unfulfilled. And so in verse 12, he moves on to consideration. It was very interesting, his turn of words. I'm a word person, so I I thought this was cool. He says this in verse 12. He starts with this. He says, so I turned to consider. I love that. In other words, I decided to turn things around and switch it around and look at life from a different viewpoint. I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly, all the things that he's already been talking about, right? For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. In other words, I'm doing this for you guys. I'm living this out, and you're going to take this example, right? And you're going to run with it, and you're going to live by remembering and pointing backward. Wisdom is greater than all the other stuff, he goes on to tell us. And in verse 14, he says this. He says, the wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet, I perceive that the same events happen to all of them. Okay, so you can be wise in the midst of all this, just like he he tells us over and over, right? But guess what he learns? And yet, no matter if you're wise, no matter if you're living this crazy life of vanity, no matter if you're trying to fulfill these pursuits and nothing's working, we still have the same end. Remember, it was that, it, that was that enormous spiritual principle that we talked about last week. Do you remember what it was? Life is short and then you die. Wise or fool, we all do. You know, I, I, think, I think about this for a minute. I wonder if God um, gave Solomon the wisdom and he continued to embrace it um, so that he could draw this conclusion. So that he can then say, I stood back to consider. I don't know. He draws a conclusion for us. In verse 17, he says this. And this was a fitting end to this section, he says. And it's disturbing. But he says, so I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What a turn, right? 
he goes on into deeper despair in verses 18 through 23, and he talks about how it feels. And it's almost like this reality is sinking in, right? I don't have any control over any of it. No matter how many things I buy, no matter how many things I build, no matter how many people I own, The message puts verses 18 and 19 like this, and I thought this was just a great translation. It puts it in modern language, so just listen with me and see if you understand kind of his despair in these verses. He says this, and I hated everything I'd accomplished, all the stuff that he listed out. I hated everything I'd accomplished and accumulated on this earth. I can't take it with me. No, I have to leave it to whoever comes after me, whether they're worthy or whether they're worthless. And who's to tell? I mean, they'll take over the earthly results of all my intense thinking and hard work, smoke. It was like this moment for him, wasn't it? Of this realization, like, all this stuff, all these things, this grand experiment that I had is all for nothing because we're all going to end up in the same place. And it's all for nothing. He says this. Go back and remember this. I had you underlined it a minute ago. It said in verse 10, what did he find pleasure in? All of his toil, didn't he? And then here in verse 18, what does he, excuse me, yeah, verse 18, what does he say at the very beginning? I hated what? All my toil. When he was in the middle of it, he's like, this is awesome. I love this. And then he gets to the end and he considers and he looks back and he says, all that I was trying to accomplish through that, nothing came of it. Darkness came of it. Made me think of... uh, lawsuits. You ever been in one of those? Don't, I don't recommend it. It's not a good thing. We're, we're working through some things right now in our world, and I'll tell you what, it made me think of that because he talks about all of his toil, all of his toil. It's so desperate. I hate it. It's like lawsuits. It's like you do all this stuff. You work so hard, and you try to do all these things, and all that ends up is no rest and sorrow and frustration, and you don't know what to do. And that's where he is. Things don't make sense right now. He's, he's, he found pleasure in his toil earlier. That was the first bite. And now he's at this different spot, right? And he's looking backwards and he's at the hundredth bite. And he's saying, I hate this. Doesn't make sense. Despair. Jessica brought it up. Everybody's been there. Whether it's been just a temporary thing or whether that's something you battle I love that Solomon is so nasty and messy and honest, right? Well, I'll tell you what. The man who has no rest, the man who's drowning in sorrow, the man who hates life because all the toil was for nothing, goes on to tell us to carpe diem, doesn't he? In verse 24 through 26, he says this. He says, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This is also vanity and a striving after the wind. Here's what I got from that. I got this. Solomon saying, hey guys, here's what I've learned. He gifted me. He gifted me and then unfairness comes and dissatisfaction comes and things don't work. 
but that he wins in the end. Doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter how I think it should go. Justice comes. Verse 25 is the key, in my opinion, right here. Is because he says this. He says, for apart from him, who can eat and have enjoyment? We try, don't we? We try to do it apart from him. He tried in the whole first part of, of chapter 2. It makes me think about this. This is kind of funny illustration, but it came to me. We, my family goes on the Belize mission trip with Rock Point, And if you, you, you want to talk to me about it, come find me. Because it's perhaps the greatest thing that's ever happened to our family spiritually. But I'll tell you this, my son, this year, like we had a certain um, position that we had to fulfill and we were in charge of this one section. And, and the cool thing about what we do there in the school is like we have these kids and they rotate and they come to you. And so like at any given moment, no lie, guys, you've got like, you've got like 50 or 60, Don, where are you? I don't remember, or a million perhaps, first grade-ish kids running at you like it's like looks like slow motion but it's totally not slow motion and they're running and they're coming at you and they can't wait to spend time with you right and and we got the station this time where we did journaling and so with these little tiny babies we did a lot of coloring and the thing is when you're in Belize and you're on mission right you don't have it's not like here where we have a giant workroom full of stuff it's like we we bring what we got and that's what we got and so for a whole week we got like 100 markers and 10 million children. And so it does the math doesn't work. So what happens is we pass out all the markers, okay? And then we, we ask them to leave the markers so that other people can enjoy the markers. I'm not kidding you what, by day third, by the fourth day, there's like three markers, orange, yellow, and an old red, right? And we're like, okay, whatever. But here's what's funny. This is what I really am getting to a point. So I was thinking about this. So my son, this year, he kind of took on more of a, he's 18 now, so like he kind of stood up front and I stood in the back, which that in itself is a whole other thing, like being a mom and getting to stand in the background is super cool. But he had this method of trying to get these precious babies to not um, borrow the markers so that we could maybe make it through day two. And he would, say, he would say this, at the end of our time together, we would say, everybody stand up. And so all these crazy little first graders, are, they stand up and they all have their hands full of markers. And then he goes like this, okay, now everybody take your hands and go like this. And they would, they're like, oh, it's a game. And they all do this. And, and then he'd go, okay, now open your hands. <laughs> and it was like everything, you could hear, you know, it was like hundreds of markers on the ground. And we're like, okay, now run to the next station. But I thought about us and I thought about what are those crayons and markers that we hold so tight because we just think, there's not going to be any left when I come back. So I can just kind of stick them in my pocket and nobody will notice. Instead, God's like, just open your hands, man, and just trust that they're going to be there when you get back. And, and, and I thought about that as we were going through this, and I thought about Solomon and the, the plurals and the multiples and all the things he's doing, and I'm thinking to myself, he was probably really holding on tight, wasn't he? Do you do that? Do, you, do I do that? Yes is the answer. What am I holding on tight to? Who's the center of my search for pleasure? So in this carpe diem section, he's basically saying that. He's like, it's kind of funny. It comes at a weird time, doesn't it? It was like kind of surprised me, honestly. He just basically stops the whole, the whole dialogue or, or monologue or whatever, and he stops and he says, but there's nothing better for a person than, than to find enjoyment in his toil. He just said he hates his toil. He just said he hates his life. I'm so confused. He's talking about a different way of approaching it, isn't he? He's talking about approaching it from the idea that God is at the center of it, 
that the hand of God is the one who brought the gifts. The hand of God, not the hand of Chris. I have to be reminded of that often. I ain't the one who brought the markers to the party. God brought the markers to the party. I'm the one that grabs hold and tries to pretend like they're mine. I thought it was interesting. One of the books I read said this section is almost as if he's, he's laid out the whole hedonism idea, right? We got that. We, we understand that's the search for pleasure and I don't want pain and, you know, I'll stomp on everybody to get it. But then he says it's almost like in this part it's like he's changing it a little bit and he's calling it like this meaningful hedonism. In other words, it's a hedonism where I'm seeking pleasure. Seeking pleasure is not evil, but true pleasure comes only in the presence of Jesus Christ. True pleasure can only be found when, you, when God is at the center of what you're searching for. There's a meaningful way to pursue pleasure. Who's at the center of your search? I thought this was a, a fitting way to finish because Solomon is so, so great in his detail often. And he laid out a couple of things very specifically that he sought after in verse two, in chapter 2 to try to find his pleasure, didn't he? And I thought, okay, God, what does it look like when we take those same things and we put you at the center of them instead of seeking pleasure or trying to squeeze out every bit or hundredth bite, right, out of these things? What does it look like when you're at the middle of it? And so I wrote it like this. When he talked about seeking laughter, right, he said, I, I was in laughter. I thought, what if it's a gift from God? Maybe laughter is less about mocking other people or being vulgar or being negative or being sarcastic. Maybe laughter is about lifting up and being joyful with each other. You know, I heard one time, and this is going to convict me right here on the stage, and you can remind me of I heard one time that in some, some really smart show I watched or something, they said, sarcasm is the poor man's humor. It's a poor man's humor, and I thought, that is actually true, because it's a lot easier to get somebody to laugh when I make fun of somebody else, isn't it? Wine as a gift from God, not unlawfully, and not this, guys. You're all going, well, I'm 21. I see all you people in this room right now. How about this? Are you escaping or avoiding reality and trying to solve problems and seek pleasure through wine instead of seeing it as a gift from God? We do it, don't we? Maybe it's not wine for you. Maybe it's something else. Possessions as a gift from God. How about this? How about our possessions? We see them as good for other people or God's glory, not just status or grandeur. What if you looked at your possessions and thought, at any minute I would say, take it. I've said this before. I don't even know if she's here today. But this is who my mom is. I'll walk up to my mom and I'll be like, oh my gosh, you look so cute today. Your shirt's so cute. And she'll go, do you want it? You can have it. I don't even care. It's cute. It'd be cuter on you. But that's how she lives. It's no joke. Go ask her. When you see her, just ask her. She'll give you her shirt. Don't. She needs her own shirt. Silver and gold is a gift from God. How about instead of looking at our money and our possessions and our credit cards and our bank accounts and our, if you got gold bullion, good for you, that's cool. How about, let's look at it like this. How about we are stewards of it, we do not own it. Amen? This, this is one where we really hold on tight, don't we? Because I need security, and I need to send my kid to college, and I need to pay for puppy food and stuff. Hold on. 
But instead, God says, how about you be a giving, charitable person, and you just steward it, and I'll take care of the rest. Sex as a gift from God. We don't like to talk about these things, do we? Because we look so pretty and we're prim and proper in this place. But let me tell you this. Believe it or not, it's actually a gift from God in the right way. Just like all of these. Any of these things that are gifts from God can be abused over and over. And then we call it dirty and messy, don't we? But it's not. It's because we ruined it. Sex is a gift from God. How about instead of being disobedient and self-governing by what we think is right and what the world says is okay... We abide by what God says is perfect. This is Solomon's hedonism with God at the center of it. True pleasure is filtered through Jesus Christ. Otherwise, you continue down Solomon's pleasure-seeking life cycle and you end up in despair and hopeless, right? Because that's kind of where he was at about verse 18. Jesus alone is hope. Jesus alone makes sense of those things that we're looking for. Psalm 1611 says this, and I'm going to close with this. He says, the psalmist says, You make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. It's like pleasure is a God thing, guys, and we got to quit holding on to us being in control and the things that we think are going to bring it. God alone brings pleasure. The lack that we saw earlier in this lesson, the lacking, still there. It's always there. There's always a wanting. Remember, he put eternity in our hearts. We're going to see that in the next chapter. There's always a desire for more. But if we're not filling it with only things of this world and instead we're filling it with things of Jesus, then hope, contentment, and joy will come. That's what Solomon is trying to tell us in chapter 2. Don't get hung up on the negative. Instead, look at where he takes us. Look at where he's trying to take us to understand that God is the source of all of our satisfaction. What are you holding on to? Open your hands. Drop it. you got to drop some crayons and trust him. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the example of Solomon. And sometimes he is, he is crazy, really. Um, and it's real easy to get critical of him and his experiments and his viewpoints. And God, then I look in the mirror and remember that I am just like him. I want to come to the same conclusions that Solomon did, that you alone are what brings satisfaction and brings peace and brings joy and brings pleasure. And God, forgive me for the times when I try to hold things too tightly and put them in my pocket. And forgive me for the times that I try to build things and I try to own things. And all the while you're saying, this is all for nothing. Lord, thank you that you love me so much that in spite of all my mess and in spite of my brokenness, that you are still solid foundation, that I can live my life at the center when you're at the center. So, Lord, thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen. Look at that. You don't even have to run. You can walk casually to get your kids. Thanks, Jessica.